All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of uh, Psalms, and we're going to be in uh, Psalm 13, Psalm 13. There are uh, six verses here in the psalm. It's a short uh, psalm, but uh, the truth that we find in the psalm uh, will, will help us As we study the Word of God, you know, my, uh, one of my desires, one of the things that I pray in my study when I'm getting ready to prepare to present a message and to preach a message is that I would be able to communicate the Word of God in such a way that you can't wait to, went, can't wait to get back into the Word of God. <laughs> I, that's one of my desires. And so... I hope that God can uh, use His Word for us just to be in awe of the help that we can receive from it, and that when we need help, we run to the Word of God uh, to find help from the Lord. So Psalm uh, 13, let's stand together. We're going to read all six verses of Psalm 13. And you can break down this uh, psalm into three parts. Two verses each part. The first part is, we might describe it as the psalmist is mourning. Uh, verse 3 and 4, we might describe that as the psalmist praying, asking something of the Lord. And then verse 5 and 6, the psalmist rejoicing. And I like the development of that. Mourning, praying, rejoicing. And so let's... Uh, Begin in verse 1. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Sorrow. Verse 3. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest mine enemies say I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. That's praying. And then verse 5. But I have trusted in thy mercy, my heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord, because he hath dealt bountifully with me. I want to bring your attention to really the first words repeated four times. How long? How long? Notice how long wilt thou forget me? O Lord, I want to preach this evening on this. How long, O Lord? How long? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that your word is quick. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so our desire is for your, work to do, for your word to do a work in our hearts, and we desire for your spirit to make application in our lives where it is needed. And so, Lord, may our hearts be ready and anticipating to hear from you how we might receive some help tonight, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Clearly, as we look at this psalm, you have in the um, first two verses a series of questions. And as we look at this question here, I entitle the, uh, the psalm, How Long? I look at this question, I think that to some extent, every one of us has 
asked the same type of question about typically a difficult season that we have found ourselves in. Everybody has experienced that. We've all said, how long? How long is this going to last? How long are we going to go through this affliction? How long are we going through this trial? And it is true, I think we all know often in retrospect that when we are in the moment, that's when it seems like it's the longest. Uh, that when we look back, it doesn't seem to be as long. And when we might anticipate it, we, we know that uh, those things uh, come and go. But when we are in the moment, the question typically is, how long are we going to be in this moment? And so this is a natural question. This is a question that I would say is common to man. But as we look at the questions here, I think that we observe, in a sense, a structure as to where is he looking to as he's asking those questions. And first of all, when he begins to ask the questions, there is an upward look in the questions. Then there is an inward look in the question, and then there is an outward look. Notice the upward look. He first of all questions the Lord. Do you notice with me, verse 1, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? And so here this question is upward. It's, it's for the Lord. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? How long wilt thou, that's God, hide thy face from me? And so this question is upward. He questions the Lord. The second question, we might say, or set a question, is an inward look. Uh, here he, he struggles with himself. Notice verse 2. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? Now notice here when he says, how long shall I take counsel with my soul? Is He's talking about here self-advice and self-counsel. Have you ever been in, in a, a time of affliction when you need help and you're kind of talking to yourself through that? And so here he says, how long am I going to keep doing this? This is an inward look. He, he struggles with himself. And then there's an outward look. The last question in verse 2 is, how long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? And so that's an outward look. Now he sees the enemy. Mine enemy be exalted over me. And so we look at this structure. There is this, and by the way, this is often... When we are in the midst of affliction, those are the questions that we often ask. Lord, how long? How long am I going to keep dealing with this? And then we start looking around at those who maybe aren't in trouble. But I want us to notice maybe breaking down here how we identify how the psalmist feels in those questions. So there's an upward look, an inward look, an outward look in those questions but then we break down really uh, those words, those questions here. How is he, what is he expressing in those questions? Well, the first thing that he feels and that he expresses, notice in, in verse 1, is how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? And so here, here's the, what he feels. He feels, first of all, that he is forgotten of God. That's how he feels. He questions the Lord, but it's an introspection into what he feels in this moment. He feels that God has forgotten him, or in a sense maybe that God has forsaken him, and notice he addresses the Lord himself in that question. And so he feels that he has forgotten of God, but then the second question, we see another feeling. He says, how long wilt thou hide thy face from me. The idea of hiding the face here conveys that the psalmist feels that God does not care about his trouble. And so the first question, while is, well, I feel like I have for, God has forgotten me, the second question, he feels that God does not care about the things that he is going through. The third question expresses a third feeling. Notice, uh, he says, How long shall I take counsel in my soul? Having sorrow in my heart daily. Here, when you look at this expression here, having sorrow in my heart daily, it seems to indicate here that he feels 
uh, that his own counsel and advice has not helped. Notice, how long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? So you would think that if uh, he counseled himself and advised himself, then he would be better the next day, but it's every day. And so here he, he feels that his own counsel and, and advice has not been a help at all. And, and that's how he feels. But then there's a fourth sentiment or feeling that he expresses in the fourth question. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Here it indicates that he feels defeated in contrast to others. Notice because he says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And so in the sense here, there is the expression he feels that he is defeated. So all those questions here express, uh, well, let me, let me ask you this. It's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer this out, li- out loud, but you have, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that God has forgotten you? Have you ever felt that God does not seem to care about your trouble Uh, Have you ever felt that uh, although you've counseled yourself and advised yourself that you haven't found help? Uh, And have you ever felt defeated? (laughs) In contrast, as you look around, that it seems that others are are exalted over me and, and I'm the one that is defeated. Here is what we learn, that there is nothing, there is truly nothing new under the sun. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Uh, the idea of here, temptation, is the word means uh, uh, adversity or, or the experiences you go through or the, the proving that we often go through, that there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And so many people, if you've ever felt that way, let me just t- tell you, you are in good company. You are in good company. Now, lest I use a illustration of myself or of a somebody specific, let's try to find, maybe if we can find this sentiment that might have been felt by someone in the Word of God. Um, I wrote down many examples, but the one that I think is the most evident one would be Joseph. Uh, So would you turn with me and uh, turn to the book of Genesis in chapter 40. Now, as we come to chapter 40, we know that this has been some time uh, since uh, Joseph has been betrayed, sold into slavery by his brothers. But we know, let's just try to go through the the whole scenario. Uh, Joseph, let's just say it. In character, he was better than his brothers. Because of that, he was given a place of authority and responsibility that, his, that, God, that uh, Jacob did not trust with his other brothers, but he trusted Joseph. And the Bible tells us very early on that they hated him and they envied him. And then one day when he was given a task to go check on his brothers, his brother conspired against him. At first they wanted to kill him, lovely brothers. But then they end up selling him as a slave. Uh, The Bible says later when they uh, threw him in the pit, the Bible says as he was crying out to them later, they feel remorse when he called out for help and they did not help Joseph. And then they sold him uh, like a piece of meat. They sold him as a slave. When he went finally to Egypt, he was bought by a man by the name of Potiphar and he tried to serve the Lord and do the best. The Bible says the Lord was with him, but uh, Potiphar's wife wanted to have her way. And Joseph would not let her. And so then she accused Joseph as he was doing the right thing, living for the, for the Lord, fearing God, by the way, doing all the right things. He was falsely accused. And then he was put in prison. And by the way, I tend to believe that Potiphar knew that Joseph was telling the truth because the sentence for a slave of committing that crime was death. And so I believe that Potiphar spared Joseph because he trusted Joseph, not his wife. But he couldn't live, he couldn't live with the reputation of that accusation in his household. So Joseph is in prison and he sits there for a long time. As a matter of fact, God kind of seems at one moment to open the door in Genesis chapter 40, which is where we find here in our text. Notice Genesis 40 and uh, let's just pick it up in verse 
uh, 14 and th- 15. Now you remember there is the, the chief baker and the chief butler. They're both in prison and, and uh, the, the Pharaoh put them in prison and so forth. And he gives uh, the interpretation of the dreams and those things come to pass. And uh, uh, notice here what Joseph says in verse 14, which kind of indicates to us maybe there's those types of questions going through his mind. Notice but think on me, Genesis forty fourteen. but think on me when it shall be well with thee, and show kindness, I pray thee unto me, and make mention of me unto Pharaoh, and bring me out of this house. For indeed I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon. What do you think about that? He has been dealt with, unfairly in his life. Hated of his brothers, falsely accused in prison, and here, notice, he, he's not uh, really, uh, uh, doesn't seem to, to be angry or frustrated. He just says, hey, would you remember me? W- would you mention me to Pharaoh? Now, we know that the dreams came true of the interpretation of Joseph, but I want you to notice verse 23 at the end of the chapter, what does the Bible say? Yet... Did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forgot him? That's in there for us. Joseph did everything right, even in prison. All he is is, would you remember me? And God tells us that he was forgotten. So we might ask here, Joseph, there's no record of him asking that question, but can I ask that question for Joseph? Lord, how long wilt thou forget me? Lord, how long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemies be exalted over me? How long? Maybe he felt forgotten of God. Maybe he felt that God didn't care about his trouble. Maybe he felt that as he continued through that, that his advice was not in hell. Maybe he felt defeated in contrast to, to others that right his, his brothers were, were fine. Potiphar's wife was still with her husband. Here the, the man was restored as Joseph had said. Everything's going well for everybody else but Joseph. How long? You know, we could think of another example. I think of maybe it's not in the, in the same way, but you, we maybe think of a, about Abraham when he had the promise of a seed. And you remember on, on a number of occasions, Abraham asked God and he says, God, there's been no child. When he, when he was 99, he finally asked the question when he had left being able to even produce children. He said, oh God, that Ishmael might live before thee. And when God told him, no, no, uh, Sarah thy wife shall have a son, the Bible says he laughed in his heart. Later in chapter 17, when it was announced to Abraham, you will have a son, uh, Sarah was in the tent, she was laughing. And we might say, well, maybe they asked this question, how long? By the way, It was past the time of bearing. All the promises of God concerning Abraham with regard to a son and a seed and a nation and all those things did not happen. So how long before those things come to pass? You see, it is often in the midst of affliction that we ask the question, how long? But I want you to notice as we return back to Psalm 13, he doesn't stop with those questions. Can I encourage you to do this? When you ask those questions, don't stop at those questions. Take the next step. What's the next step? Well, notice what the psalmist says. Verse 3, he says, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Now, here is... You remember the question he asked? Question number two. How long shalt thou hide thy face from me? God, do you not care? Are you not listening? Do you not see? And in verse three, consider and hear me. 
Well, if it was true that God didn't hear him, he would not be praying. You see, often there is what we feel. We feel that God is hiding his face from me. But that should not keep us from asking. And that's exactly what the psalmist does. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest mine enemies say I have prevailed against him. And those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. I want you to notice here, because as he's asking God to consider and hear me, O Lord... I'm really interested in this one request. This one request. And this will help us here because if we're not careful here, if you notice the series of questions and and what he asks seems to be disconnected. And what I mean by that is when he says, How long wilt thou forget me, O God? When he's asking and praying to God, he's not saying, God, uh, have you forgotten me? Or please don't forget me. Please remember me. That's not what he prays for. The question was, how long will thou hide thy face from me? He's not asking, God, would you not hide your face from me anymore? That's not his request. When he says, uh, how long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? He's not praying for his enemy to stop being exalted over him. That's not what the request is. What is the request? God, hear, O Lord my God. Here it is. Lighten mine eyes. Now what does that mean? The word, uh, when he says lighten mine eyes, the word lighten means to be enlightened. Lighten mine eyes. Here is what he is asking. God, help me to see something I'm not seeing right now. Open my eyes, Lord. Would you show me something that I cannot see right now? Why? Because all that I see in my flesh right now is that it seems that God has forgotten me, that God doesn't care. I'm trying to help myself. I can't find help with myself. And it seems that my, uh, my, my, my enemies are exalted over me. And so I feel that as though I am defeated. So God, would you open mine eyes? That is what he asks for. Now, there are two possible interpretations here, and I think that you know which one it is, but let me give you the two possibilities. Either he is physically unable to see with his eyes, and he's asking God to physically open his eyes. Possibility number one. Or he is spiritually unable to see with his understanding. I think we all know what the answer to that question or to which interpretation. God, lighten my enlighten me. Help me to see. Help me to understand something that I am not understanding right now. Hold your place here. Let me give you a reference in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1. So turn with me there. In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, Paul here in Ephesians chapter 1, he he gives the believers at Ephesus a number of requests, prayer requests that he has for them. And he's going to give them a series of requests, and he's going to tell them, here is how I am praying for you. And I want you to notice one of those requests. In Ephesians chapter 1, notice verse 16. Here's what he says. I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, here it is, what is he praying? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling, and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and set Him at His own right hand in heavenly places. And so notice here, here is how He's praying for them. He says, I'm praying that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. And then He says this, that ye may know. So he is not talking about their physical eyesight. 
He's talking about their spiritual understanding. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know certain things. That ye may know certain things. So I believe when the psalmist says, Consider and hear me, O Lord, lighten mine eyes. I believe here is what he's praying for. God, would you give me spiritual understanding? Give me spiritual understanding. Would you open my eyes? So that means that if he is asking for spiritual understanding, that means he is asking for God to help him understand. Now the question specifically is understand. Now this request seems to be very important because he says, Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. So it seems like it's it's very serious. God, would you help me or else I'm going to remain where I am. Now where was he? Where was he in this? Oh Lord, have you forgotten me? How long are you hiding your face from me? How long will my enemies be exalted over me? That's where he is. He doesn't want to stay there. He, want, he doesn't want to stay in this defeated position. He, he's asking God to, for enlightenment, for spiritual understanding. He says, lest mine, verse 4, lest mine enemies say, I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. Now, here, when he talks about being moved, it's interesting. The word here, when I am moved, means to waver, to slip, to shake, to fall. It says, God, would you intervene? Would you open mine eyes? Open mine eyes so that I don't fall and slip. So that I don't waver. So that I don't shake and tremble. Hold your place here. Turn with me to Psalm 27. We find something similar in Psalm 27. Psalm 27, and notice verse 9. Here we we have the similarities in the perspective of the psalmist, but there is a, in a sense, a a fuller answer here. Notice Psalm 27, verse 9. He says, Hide not thy face far from me. Remember the question in chapter 13? How long wilt thou hide thy face? Hide not thy face from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Here's what he says. Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I want you to notice here, he, he says really four things that help us to get up, because he's dealing with the same thing. He says, God, I've, are you hide, don't hide your face from me. From me. Uh, uh, don't forsake me. But here's what he asks in Psalm 27. He says, teach me. Lead me. That's what he says, Lord, Teach me and lead me. What what is that? We might say in this way, enlighten mine eyes. What are you trying to teach me, Lord? Uh, uh, How are you trying to lead me? You see, instead of looking for God's intervention to kind of smooth out the road, let's look for God to lead us through on the road. Teach me and lead me. And notice at the end of Psalm 27, what does he say? He says, I had fainted unless I had believed. What is that? That's faith. Believed to see the goodness of the Lord. And then he says, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. And so, 
Enlighten me. You see, because when the Lord comes alongside us and He, he teaches us and He leads us, then we are not moved. And we are not moved. You see, by faith, by faith, we faint not. By faith, we faint not. Go back to Psalm 13. We see not only his, his sorrow, we see his prayer. But then we see in uh, verse 5 and 6 his rejoicing. He says, but I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. Now, <clears throat> as I mentioned this many times when we look at the Psalms, we do not find that the psalm says, oh, now that God has smoothed the way, now I can rejoice. No, he looks in the future, he says, I have trusted in thy mercy, my heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. Notice verse 6, I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. And so, because of, we have to say here, that when he asks, Lord, lighten mine eyes, that God lightened his eyes and helped him to see something that he wasn't seeing. What was he saying? He wasn't seeing the mercy of the Lord. He wasn't seeing the salvation of the Lord. He, he, he wasn't seeing the bountiful goodness of God. Hold your place here and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. And we'll end here in Romans chapter 5. Notice with me Romans chapter 5. I say we'll end here in Romans chapter 5. We'll end here. It's true, but it might be a little longer than we anticipated. Notice with me Romans 5. Everybody there? What's the first word? Therefore, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing now, that's an important word there. Knowing, what do we know? That tribulation worketh patience. And patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Now, I want you to notice here, because we come to chapter 5, and it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful culmination in the sense that he begins by saying, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have, and he lists really four benefits, four benefits of our justification. Now it's important at this point to understand that here he's not talking about how can we become justified. He says now that we are justified. Now that we are in this position, here is the things that we enjoy as believers because of our justification. What are those things? Number one, I'll go through those things real quick. Number one, we have peace with God. <laughs> That's what we have. Notice, we're not trying to get peace with God. We, because of our justification, we have peace with God. It is a present possession. We have peace with God. Now notice here that this peace, there are several things about this peace. Num number one, this peace is a particular peace in the sense that it is specific. It is not just as the world may try to talk about, oh, you need to have peace in your life. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking here about particular peace, and that is peace with God. And by the way, that's where everything starts. You can't enjoy all the other things that we're going to talk about, the access and the rejoicing and the indwelling Holy Spirit, unless first there is peace with God. And so this is particular peace. It is peace with God. 
we not only see that it is a particular peace, but it also, it is a procured peace in the sense, he says, we have peace with God, here it is, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what we do know about this peace with God that we have. It is not something that we have attained on our own. It is not something that we've done because of any goodness that is found in us. We don't have peace with God because there is any merit in us, because there's any goodness in us, because there's any worth in us. We have peace with God because of Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful thing. And so the first benefit of justification is we have presently peace with God. The second benefit is, notice verse 2, by whom? Now here he lays out the groundwork because he says, look, we have access. But notice what he says, it's by whom we have access. And so he continues, he grabs Jesus Christ from verse 1, brings him in verse 2. He doesn't want us to be ignorant of the fact that when we're talking about have access to the presence of God, the fact that we, you and I, we can come into the presence of God, he wants us to be reminded that we don't come to God because there is any merit in us. We come to God by whom we have access. Let me put it this way. If we uh, would think of ourselves as uh, being outside of a great palace and there's this wonderful palace and you can hear all the feasting and the rejoicing going on inside and we are completely shut out of the palace. We can't go in. We have not been invited. We're not part of the family. We are not worthy of coming in. We don't have the right garment. We don't have the right dressing. We, we can't come in. We're completely shut out. We have no access into the presence of God. And the Bible says here, because of justification, Jesus Christ comes outside and He grabs us by the hand and He opens the door and He brings us into the palace. By whom we have access. And we don't come. And by the way, when we come in, He gives us a robe of righteousness. And He wipes away all of our sin. And He makes us the children of God. And then we come in and all of a sudden we are accepted in the Beloved. We, we are accepted in the presence of God. We are accepted in the palace. We have access. That's the benefit of justification. Access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. I love the words of the Bible. He says we have access. Notice, by whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. Now, we know what the word grace means, unmerited favor. That means that we don't deserve to be in the presence of God. We don't deserve to have access to God. We uh, are completely unworthy to even speak and utter the name of God. But we come into, we have access to this presence by grace, Wherein we stand. We think of grace, we think of we, when we come into the palace, here's how we come into the palace. Oh no. Thank you. Thank you so much. I don't deserve to be here. And I recognize that I'm not here because of my own merit or because of my own worth. I'm here because of the merit of Jesus Christ. He opened the door for me. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be part of the family. It is only by your grace that I am here in the palace having access to you. But he says, by grace wherein we stand. <laughs> we stand. And that idea of standing means that we are unmovable. We can't leave the place. And so by Christ we have access and we come humbly, not based on our own merit, but we stand. Why? Because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Oh, the... The contrast of grace but standing. So we have peace with God. We have access. What's the third thing? The third benefit is at the end of verse 2 and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now he will explain this in the chapter. I believe he's talking about our final glorification. The Bible makes it very clear that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And so the glory of God is something to rejoice in. By the way, that is something that is future. One, one day, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. 
We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the glory of God. Right now, we are we kind of are changed from glory to glory, but one day we will be like him. That's the hope of the glory of God. And we rejoice in that. Why do we rejoice in that? Because that's the moment when we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. We're saved from the penalty of sin. That's wonderful. But one day future, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. By the way, no more struggles. No more questions. Have you forgotten me, Lord? Those will all be gone. Why? Because we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But there's a fourth benefit of justification. The first one is peace with God. The second one is access. The third one is rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. The fourth one is a little more complex. But here's what brings us to the psalm. He says this in verse 3. And not only so. Now, he just finished talking about what? Rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we not only rejoice in hope of the glory of God, but we, which is future, it's going to happen. But not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, present. Present. So we have the opportunity, because of our justification, not to rejoice in what's going to happen to us one day, but we have the opportunity to rejoice to glory in the present. Now I want you to notice here the wording from verse 3 to verse 5. He says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Now, I want you to notice the, the, the language, the progression. Here is, we see what we do, what we know, and what we have. Notice, he says, we, this is what we do. We glory in tribulation. That's what we do. But we can only do that because of what we know. What do we know? Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. Here it is. Because. You see that? We glory because we know because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Here's what we can do. We can glory. Here's what we know. We know that tribulation worketh patience. Patience, experience, experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. So the fourth benefit of justification is the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's the fourth benefit. But I'm interested in what that means practically. Practically. We have the Holy Spirit. That's by virtue of our justification. But what does that mean? So... What we do is we glory in tribulation. The word glory basically means to rejoice in, to boast in. And we know there's no boasting in us. <laughs> there is boasting in Christ. Uh, what does he say in Romans chapter 3? Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. There is no boasting in salvation. But we do boast and we do glory in tr tribulation? you got to be kidding. I'm not kidding. The believer is able to glory in tribulation, but here's the important. We have, to, we have to read the whole section. We glory in tribulation. What's the next word? Knowing. Knowing. The, you see, we have to connect the idea of rejoicing to what we know. To what we know. You see, our conduct, our conduct or our responsive or uh, our responses or our perspective is largely dependent upon what we understand. Let me say that again. Our conduct, which is our glorying, our rejoicing, is largely dependent upon what we understand. Here's what he says. We glory in tribulation also knowing. Knowing. You see, it's not the glorying, the glorying, the rejoicing is not in the tribulation itself. 
That's not where the glory is. It's not like there's tribulation. By the way, the word tribulation means pressure, anguish, and affliction. There is no rejoicing in pressures of life, in anguish and affliction. There is no uh, rejoicing or glorying or boasting in the tribulation itself. The glorying, the boasting, the rejoicing is in tribulation because of what we know it does for us. Do you notice? Knowing that tribulation worketh. Now, the word worketh here, by the way, when you read that word, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and then he says, and patience experience, he means here, what he says here is, and patience worketh experience. And experience worketh hope. Now, the word worketh here means to work fully, to accomplish, to finish, to fashion, to cause, to perform. Here's what he says. That tribulation causes, works towards, performs patience. And then when you take patience, it, it fashions, it, it causes experience. And then when you have experience, it, it fashions or it causes or it performs hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. You see, those things, they work for the benefit of something else. So here's what we do. We begin a tribulation, but we end at what? Hope. You see that? You see, we want the hope without the tribulation and patience and experience. We want to get right to the hope part. And God says, no, no, no. That's not what we know. That is not what we understand. You see, we glory in tribulation because we know what comes about because of tribulation. It works something. It causes something. It performs something. It accomplishes something. It finishes something. It drives us to something else. Tribulation is pressure, anguish, affliction. Patience is... Endurance, steadfastness, faithfulness. That means through hardship. And then experience is testing and proving. And then hope is confidence and expectation. By the way, that's why later in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, he says, and we know. And we know that all things Work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to His purpose. That's why he uses that word. Sometimes we quote that verse and say, All things work together for good to them that love God. That's not the verse. The verse is, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. That's the important part of the verse. What we know, what we understand. So our conduct, our glory, our rejoicing is largely dependent upon what we understand. Now here's how this is all possible. Here's what we do, we glory. What we know because of what it works. Tribulation works. Patience, patience, experience, experience, hope. But then at the end he says, here's what we have. Here's what makes all this possible. Here is what separates us from everybody else in the world that goes through pressure, affliction, and anguish. That is not reserved for the, just the child of God. But we do have something that the world does not have. What is that? The Holy Spirit. Hope, but hope in who? The Holy Ghost. Notice what he says, verse 5. And hope maketh not ashamed. Here it is. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. So let me take it the other side. Here is the last benefit of our justification. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, we know that tribulation works patience and patience experience and experience hope. And therefore, because we know those things, we can rejoice. You see that? When you take it in that order... You understand because of what we have, we know certain things to be true, 
and therefore here's what we can do, we can rejoice. So I would put it this way, we don't begin with rejoicing, we, we, we begin with the indwelling Holy Ghost. So because we have the Holy Ghost, what should we be praying as the psalmist? Teach me and lead me. Teach me and lead me. Here's what we pray. So here's what we learn from Romans 5. Tribulation does not crush our hope. It rather causes our hope. Let me say that again. Tribulation does not crush our hope. Rather, it causes our hope. Isn't that what he says? Tribulation worketh patience. Patience, experience, experience, hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. You see, as Christians, because of our justification, we have something that the world knows nothing of. Peace with God, access, rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, we know certain things to be true. And because we know those things to be true, therefore we can act in a way that seems to be contradictory to what the world does. Seems to be contradictory. And so here is, you say, well, Pastor, well, tribulation comes, pressures, afflictions, what, what, what should I do? Well, I would say that when you have the sense where you feel that you're forgotten of God, that God doesn't care about your trouble, and that you feel that your own counsel and advice has not helped, and you feel uh, defeated, ask what the psalmist asked. Enlighten mine eyes. What is that? Help me to understand what you want to do in my life. And what does God want to do in our life? He is our great shepherd. Teach me and lead me. And so, when you feel all those things, don't be deceived. Don't, don't be deceived by your feelings. Go back to what you know from God's Word. And what you know is that you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And what we know about the Holy Spirit is He's doing one thing. He is doing one thing, and that is this. He is conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what He is doing. And so we have to ask Him to teach us and lead us to become more like Christ.